Kia ora. welcome to the latest episode of the Trans-Tasman Regen podcast. Today we're talking about regenerative engineering. Um, Kokle Wild, Toku Ingoa, no Ototahi Aho. My name's Claire, um, originally hailing from Christchurch, and today I'm dialing in from Poniki, Wellington. Um, and I'll be leading a few questions with some brilliant guests today um, that we've got to speak about the role that engineers and the engineering profession more broadly can play in regenerative development. We've got three incredible speakers um, who will be having a conversation with us today. The first is Chris Buntine, who's the Sustainability Manager for Northrop Consulting Engineers, um, working with a wide range of clients around Australia to deliver sustainable and regenerative buildings and precincts. He's also a past facilitator of the Melbourne Living Business Collaborative and is currently a coordinator of Engineers Declare a Climate and Biodiversity Emergency. Also from across the ditch, we've got um, Ruby Heard from Alinga Energy. Ruby is an electrical engineer and the founder of Alinga Energy Consulting, a socially minded firm delivering energy feasibility studies and design. Finally, from Aotearoa, we've got Dane Hart, who's the Chief Executive of Engineers Without Borders. Um, Engineers Without Borders is an organization dedicated to ensuring equitable access to engineering skills and knowledge in the South Pacific. They do this through their programs designed to build the capacity of the engineering sector in various island states, including skills development and working with regional partners to strengthen institutions. Dane also leads Engineers Without Borders New Zealand's Humanitarian Engineering Education Program, which is a series of workshops designed to teach engineers the skills that they need to design projects with impacts that are equitable and demonstrable. Goodness me, that was a mouthful. Um, so Chris, Ruby and Dane, we're really excited to have you on the podcast today. And firstly, it would be really wonderful to hear a little bit more about yourselves and your work. So I might hand over to Dane first to get us started. Tēnā koutou, ko Dane, tōku um, Yeah, I'm based down here in Ōtautahi, um, where nga tahu are um, um, like, you, like you said in your introduction, Claire, um, I... I'm the chief executive with Engineers Without Borders and, and I've been involved with them sort of the last 10 or so years. So my passion is really about um, kind of looking at ways where we can make the, the outcomes of the engineering sector more equitable. And, and to me, that really means both looking at what we're, what, what we're doing with engineering, but also the way that we're doing it. Awesome. Thank you so much, Jane. Ruby, I might hand over to you now. Yeah. Hey, thanks, Claire. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm an electrical engineer. Um, oh, firstly, I'm on Cubby Cubby land right now, um, but my family heritage is with the Jaru um, people of Western Australia in the Kimberley. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm an electrical engineer and um, I spent a long time working in the commercial sector, working for a big organisation and um, helping to build buildings um, until I realised that's, that's not really where I wanted to, to take my career. Um, so renewable energy was always really important to me. And I finally got the opportunity to kind of diverge my career that way um, in San Francisco. And uh, I spent a little bit of um, 2018 or 
half, almost half of 2018, actually volunteering with Engineers Without Borders in um, Ethiopia, in, in refugee camps there. And uh, yeah, came back to Australia with the idea to use those skills to help First Nations people in Australia with their energy affordability and access problems. Brilliant. Thanks so much, Ruby. Now, I also understand that you're currently doing a PhD. Could you tell us more about that? Yes, as if being the director of company is not enough. Um, I'm, I'm also doing a PhD with Melbourne University at the moment. Um, so the topic is basically responsible and sustainable energy systems for remote Indigenous communities. Awesome. Thank you so much. And Chris, lucky last, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Yeah, thanks, Claire. Uh, look, I'm coming to you this morning from the land of the Boomerang people of the Kulin Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past and present. Um, look, I started off as a, as a civil engineer many years ago, uh, working in the mining, mining industry in Outback Australia, uh, which, um, which wasn't really what I wanted to be doing, building tailings dams, dealing with the toxic uh, end of, uh, of our materials economy, I guess. So uh, I moved over to the US and, and spent the next uh, 16 years working in, uh, in California, trying to accelerate the uptake of uh, sustainable technologies, which for, for a part of that time was electric vehicles, uh, and then was working, uh, working on buildings. Um, but for the last 10 years, I've been uh, back in Australia. Um, my family relocated back here and um, working now with Northrop Consulting Engineers, uh, helping clients and project teams um, embed sustainable outcomes into building and precinct projects. And it's really about painting that picture, a really positive, compelling uh, vision of the future that, uh, that recognises the tremendous opportunity we have to design our built environment in a way that, uh, that contributes to the health of people, communities and, uh, and ecological systems. And, and uh, you know, I guess particularly over the last, um, you know, four or five years, I've been on a journey to to understand, to re-educate myself as to what sustainability is and isn't, uh, and, and to really embrace this idea of regenerative engineering, regenerative design, regenerative development, and uh, have benefited tremendously from learning from organizations like the Center for Living Environments and Regeneration in the US, Regenesis Group also in the US, but uh, in Australia, the Living Future Institute of Australia, um, a lot of great organisations that are helping reshape the way we understand sustainability um, and particularly in the engineering space, understand how we can apply engineering to the, to the work of regeneration. Brilliant. Thanks so much, Chris. And that was a really wonderful um, segue into our next question. You mentioned a little bit about, you know, understanding this definition of sustainability and um, you know, the way that we, we define sustainability versus regeneration on, on the podcast is, you know, sustainability is really about avoiding harm and regeneration is about doing more good or creating diverse benefits for lots of different people and stakeholders. So given that definition, how would you define regenerative engineering? Uh, well, just building on your definitions there, your regeneration for me is bringing new life and energy to to people, to communities, to, to living systems. And it's an ongoing process. We never get to the end of it. It's developmental. And it's about realizing that potential. Um, and that's a fundamental uh, change really to the way engineering works. Engineering is often focused on problem solving, which looks backward. Uh, but when we look at potential, we're looking forward. Um, and we're really asking engineers to uh, shift the way, shift their focus. Uh, we, we know that we'll always have to care about 
compliance with codes and standards and managing risk, very important uh, for, for buildings, particularly in managing cost. Um, but we're actually asking to step up to a new level of capability, which is about realizing potential um, and our interconnectedness, um, uh, embracing complexity rather than breaking things down, just embracing that complexity and saying that is how living systems work. Let's work with that, you know, systems thinking, which actually engineers can be very good at and, um, and, and you know, uh, uh, looking to harmonize the development of the built environment with with a with a with a living thriving ecosystem and that's where the magic is we can do both uh but we've decided for, you know uh, in in you know sort of modern culture to forget about the living systems they'll look after themselves they're not looking after themselves and we have an active role in their health um but that's a really inspiring opportunity for for engineers to to take their considerable skills and capabilities and and use them in a way that contributes and unlocks this, this incredible potential for, for life and vitality and sort of new energy. Yeah, Chris, I love that, um, that concept of realizing potential. That's something that's come up quite a few times in this podcast across you know, different contexts and subject matters. And I think that alongside you know, holding that complexity and understanding that the world can't be defined as you know, simple, straightforward problems, it's really about understanding that everything is complex and we're solving complex issues and we need to think about it like a system and also realize the potential of that as a really good way of, of um, you know, making the world a better place and regenerating um, society and our environments as well. Going to hand to Dane now for the next question. Um, Chris has sort of laid the foundations for defining what regenerative engineering is. So if we were to all take this regenerative engineering approach, then what does the future of engineering look like to you? Yeah, it's a good question, Claire. Um, well, I think the first thing we need to acknowledge is that um, when, when engineers create some output, that, that in itself is, is positive. You know, if there's a water supply system that um, we can kind of certify as free from bacteria and people aren't gonna get sick, that, that's great, that's, that's, um, that's really good. That's why we have this industry. But what we're looking for is to try and, try and build on that and, and do something more. Um, and I think that this is where kind of engineering is, is getting to, is, is kind of like, yeah, we've, we've nailed the basics, what, what else can we do? And there's some really cool examples out there where um, organizations are starting to look a little bit more holistically at projects. So one of them that comes to mind is a, um, a bus shelter that was built in, in Auckland. And the, um, the agency there sort of said, hey, well, actually we've got two problems here. We've got, um, some transport connectivity problems that we that we need to solve, but also we've got um, a relatively high youth unemployment um, problem in, in, in this area. Let's build a bus shelter, but as part of that contract, let's make sure that um, there's a certain number of people that are trained up in construction skills as as we go. And, and so the the project became about more than just a bus shelter. It became about providing employment opportunities for people. And there's heaps of really cool little things like that that we can do. We can take physical infrastructure and, and the engineering associated with that and create positive social outcomes as well. Yeah, Dan, I think that's such an important point that um, the concept of you know engineering isn't just about looking at the task at hand, it's about understanding the ripple effects of that particular project. 
going to hand to Ruby now to kind of build on what Dane was talking about. Um, and I'd love to hear from your view, you know, the positive change that engineering can create in the world, you know, whether that's for individuals, organizations, community sectors, countries, you know, even wider than that. Yeah, yeah, we, we have the power to do so much um, and to, to push so much change um, in a positive way now. Um, so I think uh, the, the role that engineers Claire, tell me your question again. I totally just. <laughs> <laughs> um, there was a question around what, what positive change can engineering create? Yeah. Yeah. So I think firstly, what we're trying to do, sadly, is reverse a lot of the damage that engineers made in the first place. Um, so we kind of like to forget the, the role that we played there um, in creating things uh, along the lines of what Dane and Chris were saying. It's all about being holistic now. And it's all about taking an approach that isn't just um, single-minded on solving a particular problem because that's how we got into this mess. Um, so I love to bring up the example of the, the Swedish engineer who invented the plastic bag, um, who did so with the intention of saving trees so that we, we weren't using so much, um, so many trees to make paper bags. Uh, so that's, you know, that's kind of being a little bit too narrow-minded and, and not, not having a, um, a long-term thought about how that's going to affect the future. And obviously now we see the disaster that plastic bags have had um, on, on the entire planet. Um, that's something in Ethiopia that made me very sad was to look out um, at along fields and just see thousands of plastic bags blowing in the wind. Um, so I think in the past, engineers have, have kind of just been too focused on just solving that singular problem. And it's not just something that happens to engineers. It's something that also happens in, in the medical profession um, and in science. Uh, that we just get so focused on the one thing and solving that problem that that we forget the interconnectedness of, of everything else and um yeah and we just design in a silo so i think the future is that we're all going to be a little bit more holistic and, and pay more attention to this interconnectedness and and just make better solutions for the long term yeah ruby and also on that note um i'd love for you to continue on this on this next question that I had for you, um, which is about the responsibility that engineers have, you know, to create that positive change. I think you mentioned a few examples of, you know, the, the plastic bag example of um, engineers inadvertently creating negative change through trying to do something good. And from your perspective, you know, what's um, the engineering profession's ongoing responsibility to make sure that the future is good? And that you know, engineering is creating positive change rather than negative change. I think we're going to start to take on much more responsibility. In the past, it seems that we've kind of been used as as tools by different organisations and um, dif for different agendas uh, to you know solve particular problems or to prove particular outcomes. Um, and I, I would like to see, and I think we're going to see engineers that are a bit more entrepreneurial, their leadership skills are gonna come out. We should be having more of a role in, um, in forming policy and, and in coming up with not just the how to do something, but the what and, the, you know, and that's driven by the why. So engineers have, have always been just told, you know, figure out how to achieve this goal. And I think that that's really underutilizing us. We also have a lot of skills to help figure out um, what it is that we should be doing um, yeah, before that. So I, I'd like to see that more entrepreneurial um, in independent leaders in the engineering field. Yeah, thank you so much, Ruby. Um, Dana, I might hand to you to see if you have any views on 
you know, what Ruby was saying about um, engineers needing more entrepreneurial skills and what do you think needs to change in the profession in order to, um, you know, create a sort of more entrepreneurial creative engineering profession? Yeah, I, I think engineers are inherently creative. Um, well, some engineers are, like, you know, I feel a bit bad because we quite often just say engineers are, um, but we're actually, we actually are a diverse bunch. Um, and in terms of sort of kind of leading change, like, so often a lot of the things that I'm looking at are um, places where, where we're trying to achieve social equity and sort of engineering outcomes are, are, are a part of that. And so engineers are starting to kind of become more conscious of, um, you know, differing cultures, differing views. There's a lot of engineers in New Zealand who are, who are now sort of starting to learn to know Māori, um, learn a bit about Māori tikanga, et cetera. But I think that we should be a little bit careful about that. We don't want engineers to try to learn how to be Māori because we've got Māori people who know that. What we actually need more of is engineers who have learned how to listen and have learned how to partner and have learned how to empower those who have the skills and the knowledge to sort of create those kind of more holistic social outcomes and, and can perhaps um, provide the, the kind of the technical skill to, to see that happen. So I, I think that, that kind of vision for the, for the engineer of the future is, is one that, that is far more interconnected with other professions rather than kind of just a, I've got this well-defined problem to solve and I'm going to get on and, and kind of try and smash that out and not look at what the, you know, what the impacts are. Impacts are. And then Ruby's um, plastic bag example is a great example of that. Yeah, Chris, I might hand to you now to build on that. I think um, one thing Dane mentioned that was really interesting was this sort of mindset shift or behavior change in the way that engineers work. For example, the importance of really listening and partnering deeply um, with, with stakeholders who, who are relevant to a particular project. And thinking beyond just the behavior of engineers, um, perhaps, you know, what change needs to happen in the broader world? For example, do you think we need... Um, changes to policy or um, you know sort of new skills in the sector or you know perhaps other types of change in the in the broader engineering market I'd be really curious to hear your thoughts on that yes yeah look I'm glad you, you mentioned sort of that mindset shift I think that's the biggest challenge that we have in the engineering profession it's not the technology uh, you know it's it's not even having the, the right sort of knowledge it's it's the view it's the lens that we look at the world and um and, and understanding that interconnectedness. And, uh, and that will require a, a broad change in terms of the education that engineers receive uh, and the support that professional engineers achieve. Uh, I mean, there's a few things that I find quite helpful in understanding what that shift looks like. Firstly, you know, if you take a look at uh, the declare, the engineers uh, declare a climate and biodiversity emergency, there's, there's a list of 12 principles in there that cover so many different areas of engineering responsibility and that shows you really how the professions are going to need to, to change and shift and where the opportunity is and where the expectation is of society of 
what the role of engineers are, but um, I've also found it helpful to look at things like uh, the benefit mindset. So Ash Buchanan's done some great work uh, here in Melbourne around that, uh, moving from the growth to the benefit mindset, not being the best in the world, but the best for the world. Um, but also, um, you know, Mark Decay has done some great work around integral sustainable design, which says, you know, engineers are great and designers are great at the tangible sometimes, looking at parts and then to some extent looking at those systems. Uh, that's the objective side. But we need to also recognise that there's that subjective side, there's that cultural uh, connection uh, with what we're building and designing uh, and also the experience of it. And I think engineers have been quite, uh, really sort of pulled back from, from that side. I've had an engineer say to me before, look, don't talk to me about social engineering. I didn't go to university for that. I just want to design stuff. Yeah, but as soon as you design in our world, in our built environment, or you're designing technologies for people, then you're already having a social impact. You have to take responsibility and recognize uh, that that's, uh, that's part of your work. Uh, and that for many of us uh, who are maybe not as technically inclined, we experience the world in a, in, a, in a different way. We don't walk into a sustainable building and go, wow, what a, what a low energy use intensity and look how many kiloliters of water they're using. No, we look around and we connect with, what, what, with, with nature and with behavior and with the, how does it make us feel and what's that design aesthetic and, and, and what, what's, what does this building say about the values of this culture that we're in? And, and so engineers need to recognize that we're, we're not all engineers uh, and we do experience the world differently and, and, and however engineers are, are influencing that world. So that's, that's great. That's recognizing that engineers have this tremendous scope of influence. And, and actually Dane was mentioning you know, before that engineers have played an incredibly important role throughout history in building really vital technologies and pieces of infrastructure. I mean, clean drinking water, we take it for granted, but that was just, just you know, the lack of that was an incredible source of disease in, in early, early cities. Um, and so engineers have played that incredible role of supporting a healthy, thriving, vibrant society in the past. The scope of that is now larger and more important and more vital, but not completely different to the role engineers have played in the past. But we need to actually support, encourage, guide, build engineers back up to that role so they, they, can, they can step up to that level of responsibility that, that we actually know we, we, we um, critically need at this point uh, in, in, in the history of modern civilization, given the crises that we face. Yeah, and Chris, that's such a good point around, you know, how the role of engineers has broadened over time as it's became, it's become more and more clear that, um, you know, engineering has these broader effects and therefore engineers need to be thinking more broadly. Um, on the flip side of that, it would be interesting to think about where the role of an engineer stops. Um, so, you know, from your perspective, when does it stop being the responsibility of engineers to be a leader or sort of where are the bounds of responsibility of the engineering profession? Um, well, look, I think we, we all recognize that we bring part of the, the answer, part of the solution, part of the knowledge to if we're designing regeneratively. And we need to have uh, bring humility to that work, recognizing that we, we have some valuable expertise. It's a, it's a part solution. Uh, and so we don't want to overstep, but we also want to recognize that the connection between what we know and what uh, another person knows, be that 
um, you know, an indigenous uh, uh, person or a person in architect or somebody in another profession, that connection and that conversation and that interface is where the magic happens. Um, and so we, we, so where do we stop um, as, as engineers? Well, I think we need to um, uh, push out to be much more engaging and collaborative and, and, and uh, you know, you sort of co-design practices working with others and recognizing that they, they bring uh, a deep knowledge just as we do. There's a, there's a tendency for engineers to, because they've been trained to do this, to jump into a, a new project and to quick, quickly start problem solving, solutionizing. They come to the, they'll come to the first project meeting with a list of solutions and they may be the right solutions or part of the right solutions potentially, uh, but they're often not because they haven't had those conversations. Um, so, so I think that's where we need to pull back a little on the engineering side is, is giving space for other people to come in and shape what we're doing because it's not all about the technology and what's the most efficient and practical and cost-effective solution uh, because that sometimes that's driving us into the wrong directions. Yeah, thanks so much, Chris. And um, the next question I might hand over to Ruby. Chris mentioned a really interesting point about you know, the importance of not necessarily coming straight in with the solutions, but, um, you know, listening to stakeholders and understanding the perspectives of others before developing whatever the solution might be. Uh, to that point, what role do you see partnerships playing in sort of making that shift to more of a regenerative um, way of working amongst the engineering profession? Yeah, it seems pretty straightforward that that's how you would start a project, that you would, you know, fully understand what, what your client does and, and the needs of that client. Um, but when it comes to the environment or uh, Indigenous communities and, and that type of thing, we, we tend to be really bad at it. Um, we come to, to the problem with a solution already in mind. Um, so then it's really hard to convince us otherwise that that's not the appropriate solution. Um, so we kind of set ourselves up wrong um, right at the start. Uh, so I, I just read a really, a really good paper about um, kind of humanitarian engineering and, and it went through some case studies of some failures in that space. And basically all, all of these brilliant failures of where people had tried to, to put in these interventions to help community, they would all, had all fallen over and it all came down to a lack of understanding of, of what was going on in these communities, how these people wanted to, to live their lives, how their culture worked, how the, the local environment worked. It was basically this, this big lack of local context. Um, and so we see that a lot and it continues to happen um, in, in NGOs um, delivering work and, um, and, and big consultancy firms as well. And I've got Australian examples of that happening recently as well. Um, yeah, and so engagement is, is absolutely key. I think we don't leave enough money in budgets for engagement. So that says to me, we don't understand the importance of it or what it takes to truly engage with uh, communities and, and people and to go to an actual environment where you're going to be doing a project. Um, and yeah, and so, so the, the best thing is to form partnerships and, and to really get out there and go and talk to communities and go and talk to people who fully understand the local environment. Um, and, and we just are not seeing that enough. But um, I, I do think that the importance of it is becoming um, more obvious now. Yeah, Ruby, and have you got any examples that you could share with our listeners of, you know, where partnerships have worked really well? 
So there's been a, a number of projects delivered in Australia with Indigenous communities where the community has been engaged really well. So I would say um, I, I partner sometimes with Indigenous Energy Australia and they are incredibly good at at going into the community and, and really understanding um, what the needs are there and, and how, so if a, a large company is planning to put a renewable energy project on their lands or near their lands, um, they, they go in there and uh, try to use traditional knowledge to assist that project as well um, and to, to figure out how to get benefits for that local community. So they've done some projects that have been really successful and, um, and one of their directors tells a, a really great story about um, how a company had brought in all of these materials and equipment and they had kind of left them out and the weather report said there was going to be no rain and the Indigenous community came to them and said, well, actually, we don't believe that's true. We actually think it's going to rain quite a lot over the next couple of days. And, um, and so they took that advice. They moved all the, or the Indigenous community actually helped them move all of that equipment um, into a safe place and and yeah and it poured for the next few days and so they you know they really helped them to um, to protect that equipment and and probably save them a lot of money and that was just through having that having initially having that connection with the community but then also trusting that they did know what they were talking about and that they had that the deep understanding of of their local environment so that's a that's a really beautiful one. Yeah, that's a very, very cool example, Ruby. Um, I'd love to give Dane and Chris the chance to, you know, share any examples of where you've seen regenerative engineering really work. One thing that we love to think about in this podcast is, you know, how to be unapologetically bold. So things that might seem a little bit unconventional, but work really well. Um, I'd love to hear maybe Dane, if you wanted to jump in first with any awesome examples of engineering that you've seen um, that you think you know the regenerative engineering community could learn from yeah thanks Pete. I, one of the things about the podcast right is you can't see me nodding my head away um as as ruby and chris are talking um actually i just i, I think this will tie in quite nicely with what with what ruby's just been talking about which i kind of want to pick up on um there's huge benefits and and really strong engagement with communities because uh, you're far more likely to get good project outcomes. There's an, the other huge benefit and good engagement is actually for that community itself. So, you know, there's, there's mana to be had and in, in, um, in proper in, engagement. And what, I'm, what I kind of mean by that is that if a community owns the project and it's theirs and... Um, you know, they really want to see it happen and then it's, it's by them and for them, then the pride that's associated with getting that completed is valuable in itself. It doesn't have to only be about the, the, the output or the, or the engineered building. And I think a really great example of this is, um, is Tuho, the, and, and Iwi and the Uruwero is, I think it is, who um, built Te Kurafari, which which was a... Um, a large building that was done um, in accordance with the living building challenge. So living building challenge means it has to be like super ecologically, environmentally friendly, um, really big challenge. Like I, I think it was all of the materials had to be sourced within like a um, quite a small radius from within it. Um, and they did it, they pulled it off. But they referred to it as, as like the house that we built. It wasn't 
they don't refer to it as the house that some engineers from out of town came in and built for us and, and kind of asked us a few questions about what we want and then the, those engineers got on with it. It's, it's the house that, that they built. And that pride that comes with that is, is so apparent when you see anything written about it. And, and I think that that is so valuable in itself. Yeah, maybe I could just build on that, uh, Dane. I'm so glad you you mentioned that example because uh, I visited uh, Takurafari uh, and it's an amazing building and an amazing story and people are coming from all over the world to see that that building. And I actually think the uh, the Living Building Challenge is one of the best examples that, that I know and it's a framework I use a lot for regenerative engineering. And it starts by asking this question, what if every single act of design and construction made the world a better place? You know, every material, you know, every aspect of that building, the, the, the electrical, mechanical, the plumbing systems and the, and the daylighting systems and the, you know, uh, the transport systems. So it's, it's a really deep question and it's challenging engineers to think differently and to aspire to buildings that are, you know, energy and water and nature positive. You know, they're not just less bad. It's about what, what, how can they contribute in a positive, positive way? And look, every building has a, a footprint, but if they are as transformative as that project was, and there's another fantastic example, which is the Burwood Brickwork Shopping Centre in Melbourne, which was designed around the same set of principles and done by, you know, Fraser's uh, property large developer in, in, um, in, in Australia, uh, with, a, with an urban farm on the roof. Uh, which, which is all, you know, it's also a, a striving for that energy, water, nature positive outcome. Um, and, and these are projects that are, are world leading and they generate so much excitement and they are clearly examples of partnerships, deep partnerships. It takes a lot of people to put these kinds of projects together and to rethink uh, the way that we collaborate and the way that we design and the way that we construct and deliver projects like this, but there is so much opportunity and yet there is a real tentativeness in the market to, to embrace projects like that. And one of my frustrations is that quite a few organisations are exploring living buildings, but they're often not public about it because they're afraid they might fail. What if I actually try and design a regenerative building or precinct and I don't quite make it? So maybe I won't tell anybody I'm trying it. It's absolutely the wrong approach. You know, I think uh, we, we are very supportive, I think, across the industry of people trying new things. Think of Silicon Valley. We really promote innovation and trying new things. If you fail, that's fine, because the next time you try, it'll be even better And after that. And so we need to encourage people to take some of these risks, to try new things. They will unlock so much energy and commitment, and often it brings in additional financing as well uh, to help the, help the, the financial equation. But let's let's see an industry and an, and an engineering, you know, community that that does want to be bold. Uh, that that if and, and if we're on a project and the brief doesn't say, please design us a regenerative building or precinct or piece of infrastructure. Let's let's ask why not. You know, let's bring that to the table because if we just respond and react, it's going to be a very slow moving uh, uh, pace of change. I love that. Um, and that idea of, you know, just act and, and just, you know, thinking about things differently, I think is so important for the regenerative engineering movement. Um, we've only got a few minutes left, but before we wrap up, I'd love to hear from each of you, you know, an action that our listeners can take or something that they can get involved in to support the regenerative engineering movement. Diane, I might throw to you first. 
Um, for me, it's just keep learning. If you're, if you're listening to a podcast about regenerative engineering, you've, you're already well on the way there. Um, EWB can actually help you with that too. A little cheeky plug here. If you um, check out our website, we've got a workshop that we run called Pathways um, where we talk people through this. How do you, how do you bring working cross-culturally into your work? How do you design um, with gender equity in mind? How do you monitor and evaluate all, all of that work? So we can, um, we can help you out. We can talk to you more about, about how to do all those things. Awesome. Thanks so much, Jane. And, and Ruby, anything, you know, any ideas that you have that um, listeners can, can do? Yeah, uh, regenerative engineering isn't just a job for engineers. Um, so we also need the support of the general public to actually adopt these new practices and, you know, maybe give up some of the luxuries that we enjoy at the expense of the planet right now. I'm, I'm a big advocate for maybe living with a little bit less too. Um, and engineers are out there kind of creating electric vehicles, buy them. Um, we all vote with our dollars every single day. Um, so we need to do what we can to, to support regenerative and sustainable initiatives and products. Um, so today for you, that might look like just choosing something that's wrapped in a plant-based plastic in, instead of um, you know, a, a plastic alternative. Um, yeah, or if you can afford it, go out and get an electric vehicle. Do, you know, if you have more money, you need to do more basically and you just need to do what you can every single day we've all got to work together we all played a part in creating the problems that we we have now um, and it's going to take absolutely every one of us to turn it around thanks so much ruby and finally chris yeah look there's so much great information out there especially as we're all uh, online um, to learn and, uh, and and to engage but i'd really encourage people to do some reading i think regenerative uh thinking it's a deep dive uh and it's a it's, it's quite a journey and, and what's been very helpful for me is to read books like designing regenerative cultures by daniel fisher and Weil, the systems view of life uh, by Friedolf capra fantastic one for engineers and integral sustainable design by mark decay which i mentioned earlier um, but also get involved in in the movements the networks the organizations that are trying to um, bring people together who want to be part of this change. So uh, the DECLARE movements are fantastic. There's one for engineers, architects, planners, builders, uh, uh, you know, local government, et cetera. But also we're seeing the, re the uh, regenerative cities movement around Australia, regenerative uh, region Melbourne, and there's a region Sydney, and uh, discussions about similar in, in Adelaide and Brisbane. Great opportunities to get together and connect with others to learn, support, and, and be part of part of this change we've all been talking about. I love that, Chris. Um, this has been a really brilliant conversation. Um, and while we've had, you know, Ruby, Chris and Dane sharing all of their nuggets of wisdom, we've also had um, co-founder of the podcast, Matt, um, sort of sitting quietly in the background. And I'm going to hand to him now to wrap us up. Yeah, it's tricky to know where to begin. But one of the, the things that did uh, become apparent really quickly is around this idea of equity. But seeing equity as a creative force and a source of innovation, um, this opportunity to shift our mindset from growth to benefit and to find those opportunities in the making of projects, such as the employment of young people that can have those positive ripple effects. There were ideas around legacy and inheritance uh, and examples such as the plastic bag or water and 
maybe sometimes how we shine a spotlight on the negative things, but importance of remem remembering those positive things that have also happened. Underneath all of this, it's interesting as we move from different conversations through the podcast, but there seems to be this genuine search of how professions and how professionals position themselves within this, this movement towards greater care for each other and the earth. Uh, and these themes of responsibility, agency, entrepreneurship and leadership that come through. But probably one of the biggest ones that come out of this conversation is the importance of partnerships and to shift in uh, away from purely meeting the needs of clients and customers uh, to looking at those broader stakeholders, such as the environment community, including First Nations uh, people. Uh, there was examples of failures uh, where there wasn't that de uh, depth of understanding, but also some really positive examples such as Indige Indigenous Energy Australia, uh, the house we built in Aotearoa, and we'll provide the link uh, for that one uh, in the follow-up, uh, and the shopping centre with the, the uh, uh, green roof uh, too. So I think what's interesting is some people are, are looking for these tangible uh, reasons or, or impacts of what does it actually mean that's, that changes the way we do things differently. Well, in the case of the partnerships, it, it, uh, Ruby made the comment around budgeting and valuing partnerships and allowing for those processes and, and that actually being part of the risk management approach because if you have that strength in outcome, then it means that you actually decrease your risk uh, profile, but it also influences the way that you measure uh, performance uh, and pride being an example of that. But two things I'm going to close with. One is the question around the future of engineers. And uh, Dane mentioned a really interesting point uh, around it's not about people learning how to become Maori because there's already enough Maori people who are Maori. But the power of lessons like learning how to listen, to partner, and to work more holistically and collaboratively, being universal practices that we can all adopt. And Finally, Ruby sharing uh, this phrase or this, this call to action that we all have the power to do so much. And that's the accumulative uh, accumulation of those daily actions that all add up in a long run. So thank you to all of uh, our guest speakers today, to Ruby, to Chris, to Dane, to Claire for being the lead host on this one. And uh, we'll be uh, very much looking forward to including some of these links as part of uh, the communications that we send out. But for now, keep an eye uh, on the next podcast to come out. There's a whole wave that we're working on. And uh, hopefully today we've been able to share some perspectives on regenerative engineering. Thank you and all the best.